what I want, and I think what most archivists want, is for these stories to be told. And if it's not at the Chicago History Museum, that's okay. But my first goal, first and foremost, is to help people understand that their their stories deserve to be told. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ProQuest podcast. I am Matt Toby, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Courtney Suchu. Hello, Courtney. Hello. Hi, Matt. Thanks for introducing me. I'm the communication specialist here at ProQuest and the lead writer of our Extraordinary Stories blog. And today we're speaking with Julia Robluski, who is an archivist from the Chicago History Museum. Our conversation was inspired by a recent partnership between ProQuest and the Chicago History Museum to digitize the papers of the African-American Police League, making these documents available to researchers around the world. Um, so, Julie, I, just, to, just to start off, um, uh, tell us some more about this collection and uh, um, wh- why you think it's uh, so, so important to, to researchers. Hi, Matt. Hi, Courtney. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this collection. Uh, we're not perhaps supposed to have favorites, but if I were forced to admit it, I think this is probably one of my favorite collections in the museum. Um, the rec- The records here are from the African-American Police League, um, which originally started as the Afro-American Patrolman's League in Chicago. And it was formed in 1968 by Edward Buzz Palmer and a group of other uh, individuals in response to the aftermath of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with Chicago history may be familiar with the story of how Mayor Daley at the time gave an order to shoot to kill. Uh, people who were perceived to be uh, participating in any kind of civil unrest. Um, And understandably, that was a pretty uh, controversial way for him to approach that. And Mr. Palmer, uh, Renault Robinson, and a lot of other African-American officers in the force at the time realized that that was maybe not the right way to go about working with the community Um, as well in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, um, the murder of Fred Hampton in Chicago, and other attacks and threats on Black leaders, they were also concerned about whether or not there was actually any true protection for um, leaders in the African-American community. And then finally, um, as police officers, they were also interested in what could they do to help prevent some of the problems that they were dealing with as police officers and start trying to address some of the root issues behind the crime they were often confronted with because they recognized that some of the systemic issues of poverty and segregation and lack of opportunity and lack of education um, were, were big factors. And by addressing those, that that might be a way to actually more effectively uh, promote peace and to serve and protect the public. Um, So they formed this organization uh, within the Chicago police force um, that was a a membership organization, dues paying. So a little bit like a union structure, but not really precisely that. And so they they wanted to advance these issues as well as working to um, increase the amount of uh, officers of color uh, in the force. Um, And uh, they faced a lot of opposition. Um, there, if you talk to some of them, many of them are still around. They have some pretty, pretty hair raising stories about the reception from some of their fellow officers and the public. 
Um, but they persisted and they were able to do a lot of really great things. One of the, the interesting things about this collection, um, in addition to sort of all the usual things you would expect to find, um, organizational documents, newsletters, minutes and agendas, planning documents, they also started collecting civilian reports of police brutality and excessive force. Um, starting in 1968 and going up through the late 70s. And when you look through, and it's just, it's a really, really large volume in the collection, it's a pretty powerful piece of evidence of something that is has is and has been a longstanding problem, not just in Chicago and elsewhere, um, and has a lot of relevance for things that people are interested in researching and learning more about and taking action on today. Um so uh, we got these papers uh, from Renault Robinson, who was the first president of the organization, served as a longtime president and executive director, um, and who is still active uh, in the Chicago community. So did, you were talking about how these documents are still relevant to contemporary issues and concerns about police brutality. Did that factor into your decision to work with ProQuest to digitize them? It did. Um, and how we came about, I have been at the museum for a little over four years. And when I started here, uh, one of the things I discovered was that a big chunk of the collection, including those brutality reports, were actually under restriction, um, saying that we couldn't serve them to researchers. Um, and I started looking into that and couldn't really find out or figure out why. It didn't seem to have been a restriction that came at the request of the collection donors. Um, mm -hmm. And in going through the reports... And in talking with the donors, they hadn't, they hadn't, they had been surprised to learn about this as well. And so in, in thinking about that and in thinking about the research potential and the informational value of this, I wanted to not just open this up, but really, really get this as, as broad exposure as, po as possible. Um, around the same time, um, we had recently finished up digitizing some other collections with ProQuest, and I was talking uh, with Daniel Lewis, uh, one of the ProQuest staff members, about some other potential projects. And I brought this to his attention, knowing that we had finally been able to unrestrict all of these materials. Um, it's a pretty large collection. Um, it's over 320 boxes of materials. So it's also one of those things that even though there's a lot of value to be gained from looking at the materials yourself in person, when you're dealing with that much information, um, the value of having it digitized and being able to do that kind of full text search and, and kind of really looking at it in a more aggregate way, I think is really, really powerful. When you think about um, these kinds of reports and statistics that they were collecting, I think that having it digitized makes it usable and useful to people in a whole different way, as well as uh, really raising awareness and getting it out there. Because of course, we're in Chicago, not everyone can come here and look at these in person. And even though we do do some in-house digitization ourselves, a collection this size is a pretty big one for us to try to maintain with the technological and other resources that we have. And we just don't have the same kind of, of, of reach, I think. And so the partnership with ProQuest was really of interest to me because it really presented this, this way for us to get this out there in front of people. And then, of course, as well, we have the digitized version available to people who come into our research center. So um, it, it adds a, a little extra value to researchers coming in here to use the collection where they have that choice where they can drill down and look at individual documents, but they can also work with it in this larger scope kind of way and really zero in on the things that are going to be of most interest to them. 
How did the Chicago History Museum come to house these documents? Well, uh, these came in um, during a period where we were actually pretty active in collecting. Um, we had a longtime curator and archivist named Archie Motley, who's a little bit of a legend in the archival field because he's someone who really was at the the forefront of changing what it meant to be a historical society. A lot of people's understanding of historical societies and history museums was kind of this very traditional, you know, powers that be in your community, you know, in Chicago, that would be your Marshall Fields and your Potter Palmers and, and, you know, your Sears and things like that. And all of, all of which are important stories to tell. But of course we realized that that meant that there's a lot of other stories that weren't getting preserved and told. And Archie really, went out and actively started cultivating relationships in the greater Chicago community with neighborhood organizations, with social justice groups, with labor organizations, and a lot more of the sort of all the rest of the people that actually make up the city of Chicago. Um, And he himself um, was born to um, a white mother and a black father. So he identified with the African-American community. He identified as black and had a lot of connections there as well. And so that really helped him, I think, build some trust and and really helped uh, broaden the collecting scope. And because of that, we we started to get these collections um, that had had these kinds of social justice focuses and that really represented some of the, the bigger concerns of sort of everyday people in Chicago. And we were approached by um, Renault Robinson and the organization at a point where they essentially were sort of forced to disband because of some changes in how they were able to collect dues um, uh, back in the 80s. Um, and so uh, we we got the last of the donations, I think, in 1984, as they were sort of closing down their office. And so they came in, they got processed. Um, some of the materials were restricted until about two years ago. Um, and they have been here ever since. Um, and we've recently become more active in, in working working with the donors to try to really do, activate this collection more. So I'm, I'm curious uh, if uh, you've been in touch with any researchers who are, have, have used this uh, collection for any, any of their projects or, or uh, what you see as maybe some potential uh, research that, that could come out of this. Um, I have actually, uh, on a number of levels. So, uh, in fact, actually in mid-October, on October 15th, we have an event going on here with a, an author named Simon Balto, um, who has a book that came out earlier in, uh, earlier this year. Um, and I'm going to blink on the name. Oh, it's called Occupied Territory. Uh, Occupied Territory Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power. So he takes a look starting with July 1919 and the the race riot in Chicago that began after um, a a black child um, had on a raft drifted into across the invisible line in the lake into what was deemed as the white swimming area. Um, And he's he looks at that as a pattern of brutality, negligence, and discriminatory policing and bringing it forward. And so he worked extensively with the police league papers, including the, the newly unrestricted records. And so that's kind of the, the one that I know about that really ha- has actually come out of the full access to the full collection. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a professor named Toussaint Lassier uh, at UMass who has a work in progress. And he also uh, 
writes extensively about issues of race and poverty and discrimination in um, law enforcement and the legal system. And so he has a work in progress that I know will be coming out sometime soon. But as well, some of our most interesting users of the collection are actually what we call our our History Fair students. There's a program in Chicago called the Chicago Metro History Fair, which is housed here at the museum. It's part of the larger National History Day and History Fair program. Um, It's a pretty widespread program here where most K through 12 students do participate in some fashion. And this has become an incredibly popular topic for middle school and high school students to do their projects on. I serve as a volunteer judge for the program, and I've seen probably about a dozen uh, projects over the last two years, some websites, some papers, some, some short documentary films of students in that age group uh, working with the materials. And I expect that trend to continue. And it's really, it's really inspiring to see them getting excited by this collection and, and sort of finding this emerging scholarship voice and, and, and developing their research skills with something that they find so much value and meaning in. That's yeah, really exciting absolutely. and interesting that the young people are invited to, to handle and look at and use these primary sources. What are some of the stories that they're discovering in their research? A lot of different ones, actually. Um, a lot of them will zero in on a particular individual. Um, mm-hmm. So we've had a couple of people really dig into the lives of some of the individual members, uh, particularly Renault Robinson, and examining sort of the path that his career and life took as a result of these decisions. And others have kind of done, I think, sort of something similar to what uh, uh, Balto and Lossier have done, where they've actually started to take a look at the evolution of different kinds of, of laws about um, uh, one student was looking at that in light of sort of some of the stop and frisk laws, not just here, but in other places. So they've taken sort of more of that social change effect. Uh, someone else was starting to look at an examination of, of social protest and affecting change and looking, comparing, doing sort of a compare contrast between this and other movements. So you really, a lot of different perspectives. And I think it's one of the great things about the collection because you can really, there's a lot of stories that you can tell about this, about the individuals, about how they went about affecting change um, because they had to do it both in a legal sense through court cases and changing of laws and, 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 and at the city, state and, federal levels, um, but also sort of how do you, how do you change minds? How do you get other kinds of social programs and things that support, support what you want to see happen and, and enlist people uh, in your cause? I think it's, I was, I actually just had a conversation earlier today with um, a primary source librarian at, at a university and she was talking about changes over time and how, how primary source, like the importance of primary sources and K-12 education. It's just about like how 20 years ago, like even an undergraduate student would not necessarily be directed to the primary sources. They'd be using mostly secondary sources and how that's changed. And it sounds like that the program that you're talking about is part of that, of, of encouraging younger students to analyze and investigate primary sources. Is that is that like a, a, a part of an overall program that that's going on at your at your museum it is and i think it's reflective of a general trend in archives in particular um you know as the chicago history museum we we really view our role as being the museum of the people here in chicago Mm -hmm. um you know we're not affiliated with the university you don't have to have any kind of special credentials our research center is free and open to the public so if you're here in chicago um 
during the open hours, you can walk, you can just walk in, you do not have to make an appointment, you do have to have some kind of photo ID and abide by some of the, you know, usual precautions like pencils only and, and, you know, no food and drink, but um, we're open to everyone, whatever topic is of interest to you. And I think because of that, we really try to make that kind of access as egalitarian as possible. You don't become an adult who's interested in researching topics if you don't ever learn that that's possible. So the earlier we can expose students to this and, and get them interested and excited, I think the more the more likely it is they'll want to continue that um, in the future. And of course, we're all history inclined here. And I think we realize too that you know part of being the Museum of the People and the Museum of the City is that we have a lot of passion for it. And we want people who come in and who live in the city to be excited by it too. And one of what better way to sort of start appreciating different parts of your city's history than by having the chance to learn about some of these things, uh, both serious topics and lighter topics. And I think in the, the archives field, one of the things I've noticed is sort of over the years, there's been this shift away from sort of a more traditional historian history degree approach to people coming from a library science background and librarians are pretty well known for really prioritizing access and use. Um, And I think that's really influenced this kind of programming of, we want people to use it. It's, we're not really fans of the serious scholars only. We think Mm -hmm. anyone's inquiry is worthy, worthy of respect, worthy of time, worthy of letting them have access to it. Um, And getting students excited about this is just one of those ways that we really, you know, make sure that, that we're, we're not just hoarders of old stuff, because if we're saving all of this and people aren't using it, or we're only letting a select few people use it, that's effectively what we're doing. We're, we're preserving this so that people can use it and can find meaning with it and can do things and create new things with it. And the earlier age that we can get people excited about doing that, you know, the better it's, it's better for historic conversations. It's better for research in general. It's better for institutions. I think it's better for people understanding and valuing actually preserving history in general um, so that we don't have to worry so much about people throwing things away and deleting things and never thinking, oh, hey, somebody might actually be interested in this for the future. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is, the, is the league still active or has, has it disbanded? The league itself has disbanded, but there are um, some other uh, groups that are sort of offshoots or spinoff groups. Um, The most notable one is something called the Positive Anti-Crime Thrust, which is an organization that Renault Robinson, um, the collection donor and um, original president, um, and Howard Saffold, uh, one of the other donors and, and sort of main executive officers for many years are, are they formed and are very active in this. And it's a much more um, social justice oriented group. They work mm-hmm. really with activist groups, church groups, neighborhood groups, parents, schools, the public library. They're trying to cast a pretty broad net and really, I think, focus on some of those social issues um, as opposed to just focusing on, on policing. And then there's also um a group called the Guardians that was sort of an offshoot that's a little bit um, more focused on the legal aspects and police reform. And so those are kind of the two main groups where some of the, the, the former members have ended up, if you will. But 
if you start looking around in Chicago and you start looking at things that are dealing with any kind of issues of discrimination um, in law enforcement and uh, working on anti-violence, you tend to find a former member somewhere involved. So they, they um, although they are not in existence on their own anymore, you sort of see their, their hand everywhere and their effects everywhere, which is really great. Um, the other thing worth noting, too, is that uh, this group came into uh, being before there was a National Black Police Association. So to some extent, they you know, really had a hand in, in making sure that there was sort of this national level organization. Hmm. Yeah, so really the forebears of that, that kind of representation and seems mm-hmm. like the, the mission and spirit are still very active, even if not in that name. Yes. And I am, am I correct in thinking that the some some of the papers from the National Association are also part of this collection. They are uh, a pretty substantial portion, since so many of the people in AAPL were involved with the founding of that organization, um, which was one of the challenges for digitization um, and something that comes up a lot in archives because it's pretty common for people to have material that they may own the physical custody of it, but they didn't create it and thus they don't have the copyright. Ah. So that's always one of the the journeys that you have to go on. And I, why I always laugh when people say things like, why, oh, isn't everything digitized now? Isn't it all on the internet? Um, because it is one of the hurdles that you have to, to jump through. And generally, most people in most organizations are pretty amenable to, to having that happen because they recognize the value and, and what it does for the legacy and what it does for getting information out there. But sometimes half the battle can just be finding the right person to talk to and, and actually getting in touch with them. Um, we're fortunate that the National Black Police Organization is an existing organization, but when things disband, um, you know, people move, die, retire, etc., it can get really hard to track down who a current rights holder is. And so there's, it's not that you can't necessarily digitize something anyway, but there's a certain amount of risk involved because there's always the chance that somebody might not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's their right as the rights holder. So um, there was this whole chunk of material that we did actually have to sort of pursue separate permissions from uh, to make sure that it was okay to digitize. You mentioned something a little bit earlier that's a topic that's really been of interest to me lately. And you you were talking about how the the an, an earlier curator at the Chicago History Museum played a part in in um, getting these materials housed at the Chicago History Museum and making an effort to include documents that reflect the lives of everyday people. And it, it makes me think about like how, how primary sources are, have been historically collected and, and how it hasn't, it hasn't always been reflective of the everyday people. A lot of times, you know, there's a certain degree of power in, in deciding what, which which kind of material should should be saved? What what which is, what material is worth being hung on to and and will have historic value? And then also in organizing that material and seeing how is made available to the public. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about your work as an archivist and organizing this material and making decisions about how how it's accessed. Uh, that's a great question, and it's something I I think about a lot. Um, because I think as with many people in this field, if they're at an older institution, you can sort of see how your collection has changed over time as some of those priorities have shift shifted. And, uh, 
really spending a lot of time thinking about how can I, how can I help make sure that this really tells as many different stories as possible? Um, and how do you do that? Because things, sometimes things magically show up on your doorstep where people get in touch with you. But a lot of times, especially when you're trying to get in touch with everyday people or people who aren't sort of traditionally historian inclined sorts, um, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, hey, my neighborhood association should go to the history museum. So there's a lot of education and outreach and relationship development that has to go into it. That if you are serious about wanting to make sure that you are reflecting those areas, you you kind of have to get out and be part of your community um, in whatever way you can and and make connections and and also maybe find some champions because as a alone human being, there's only so many places you can be at once. And as well, the more that you are trying to reach out to different people and different types of people, you also have to recognize the fact that, you know, it's a truth of our society that institutions and organizations haven't always treated people the way in a way that engenders trust. And so you yourself, depending on your connections, coming in as an outsider saying, hey, let me take your stuff and take it into the museum is not going to come across um, in, a, in the way that you might hope. And so really working in a way to establish that, but also maybe finding some people that are ambassadors of a sort. Um, you know, we are also members of an organization called the Black Metropolis Research Consortium, which involves other institutions in Chicago. And that organization specifically does try to work on sort of neutral advising uh, for people in Chicago's Black community um, to help them think about the long-term preservation of their records without pushing them to give them to institutions in general or and definitely not to specific institutions, but really just to help them understand that their their history has value and their sto- their story deserves to be told. And sort of, please don't just throw that stuff out in the trash the next time you clean out the closet. Um, but to not sort of have that neo-colonialist agenda, I guess, as I always think about it, it, it can be a really slippery slippery slope with that. But there's also something too that if you have a voice of authority, you have to try to use it as well as you can. The more you understand what's in your collection you also then start to understand what's missing um, by paying attention to that and by paying attention to the community that you're in. And you sort of just start trying to systematically see what you can do about it. You also have to recognize you probably can't do everything, but doing something is better than doing nothing. And it's a little bit of a, an avalanche effect, I think. Making one connection, making one collection, doing right by it, um, proving yourself worthy of trust um, and looking at new ways of doing things can really have this multiplying effect for the future. And, and ultimately, too, I think sort of taking yourself and your institution out of it in an ego sense, as in what I want, and I think what most archivists want, is for these stories to be told. And if it's not at the Chicago History Museum, that's okay. But my first goal, first and foremost, is to help people understand that they're their stories deserve to be told um, and really will help them with that. So it sounds like you play a lot of different roles as an archivist at the Chicago History Museum. Can you describe just a maybe a typical day in the life of a Chicago history 
museum archivist? That's a good question. Um, An excellent question. It might be easier to give you a a typical week because (laughs) data-to-day. I bet. I can Uh, imagine. Yeah. Um, So uh, during the course of a typical week, um, I am usually doing some light collection processing myself because I I like to sort of treat myself to some hands-on work. Um, although I have to sort of stick to the smaller collections since I have some other responsibilities. And then we have sort of other staff here who get a little more hands-on with the bigger collections. So I'm also supervising and advising on their work. Um, We usually have a couple of grant projects running at any given time. So there's usually some super fun uh, paperwork involved with that, Uh, you know, reports, budgeting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, usually on any given week, we have supplies coming in and or collection materials coming in or out. So at least one of the days, you're probably going to find me in my grubby clothes, climbing up and down a ladder, uh, moving the pallet jack, uh, doing what I call the CHM CrossFit, uh, pick up a 30-pound box, go up the ladder, put it on a shelf, uh, and repeat uh, many more times. Um and then doing uh, some preservation work and cleaning um, and then consulting uh, with other members of the museum. We're also always working on the next exhibits. So we work with our curatorial staff to help them research and advise on materials that might be good candidates for inclusion. Um, we're working with, I'll have some meetings and, and maybe even a public event, uh, working with our education and public programming staff where we will have materials out on display and perhaps giving some sort of a talk um, and then answering usually some specialized research requests. We're fortunate that in addition to the archivists who take more of a hands-on collection management and development approach, we also have some librarian archivists who um, staff the research center and kind of handle the majority of the reference traffic. But sometimes, you know, the thing about archives is they get weird. And we've been collecting stuff since before the Chicago fire. And, you know, sometimes over the course of time, there are some things that are a little mysterious in records or there are questions that kind of approach the next level. So sometimes I get involved with trying to figure out what exactly is going on here um, from this thing that's, you know, been around in the museum longer than I've been alive with some, some somewhat murky paperwork associated with it. So there's a little bit of that mystery solving and, and sort of higher level research question answering that goes on too. I love that you, uh, that there's parts, complete physical activity, up and down ladders, hefting these giant boxes, and then there's also like a sleuthing aspect to, to being an archivist. It sounds very exciting, except for maybe the all the paper, the grant writing paperwork that you were talking about. Yes, that is arguably, I think, <laughs> many people's uh, <laughs> least favorite part of the job. But, um, you know, I try to take the viewpoint of it's important to do because grants are such an important source of funding for us to tackle mm-hmm. big one-off projects. Um, and they really help us get a better handle on how we get our work done and sometimes to innovate in the way we do our work. And it's always so tempting, I think, for people to be a little loosey-goosey and and working on that to really quantify how much time are we spending, how much money did this take versus what we, you know, what we thought versus what it actually, actually took. You know, that's so helpful. It really helps you and your institution get better and better about planning and resource management so that you can really make sure that you're doing the best to take care of collections. So that's how I try to pep talk myself about it every time I <laughs> have to sit down with the spreadsheet. 
So what inspired you to pursue a career in this field? Well, like a lot of people, this is actually a sort of a second career for me. I actually started in communications. Uh, I am an English major and I started doing a wide variety of technical and PR type writing. Um, I worked for a company, a software company that does electronic medical records for quite a long time, uh, working on technical communication, marketing materials, knowledge management, um, all basically, if you had to write it down, we did it. And we got very good at um, translating computer programmer to everyone else. And as part of that, we started to really delve into thinking about knowledge management and who's creating what and how do we centralize information, both for the people using the software, but also all of the information that the people working at the company uh, needed to do. And I I started to get interested in library science because, of course, that's a a pretty big philosophical aspect of what it was all about. Um, And when I moved to Chicago, um, the company I worked for was out of state. And so there's a residency requirement. So it was sort of an opportunity to um, look at something new. And one of the things I'd realized while working there was that I actually really like computers and technology. Um, I'm, I'm at least a mediocre web developer uh, on my own. And had we had worked on developing some of our own in-house knowledge management tools. And as I started to explore things, I realized that archives was this blend of cool old stuff storytelling, but also thinking about the the future of the past, if you will, because in addition to the traditional documents and photos and, and physical films, you also have born digital photos, digital video, digital audio, websites, emails, Twitter accounts that are kind of the, the new frontier that everyone is, is trying to problem solve about how do we preserve that so that we don't have this sort of digital dark age. And so the combination of all those approaches really spoke to all of the things that I'm really interested in. And it just seemed like such a natural fit for what I, I like to do and what I wanted to do. So I went back to school and got my MLIS and uh, started working in the archives field, and then eventually went back for a second master's in digital humanities because I apparently just can't stay away from code. You make this all sound so exciting and so interesting and important. I, I want to sign up right now to, to go to school and become an archivist. Um, I Well, obviously I'm biased, but I love it. It is one of those things. Every day is different, um, and every box is full of surprises. Uh, uh, my other favorite joke is that one of these days I'm going to start a bingo card for strange things I found when going through collections when they come in, because of course you get all of these really fantastic, fascinating documents, photos, and materials. But especially with the physical collections, you also get sort of the weird stuff that people forgot or left over in their in the back of their desk drawers and things like that. So. Um, oh, I have to hear some of the weirdest things you've found. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, most recently, uh, I found a quite a large amount of cash. So I'm in the process of getting in contact with the donors to return that to them. Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, but we've also found things, um, you know, uh, uh, undergarments, um, sort of really personal letters um, in what would otherwise be business collections. Um different kinds of food, 
um, baby teeth, uh, lacks oh you know, kind of the full spectrum, you know, it's, it's really surprising sometimes, uh, kind of, you know, people have something and they put it somewhere and then they forget it's there. And perhaps at some point they're not around and it's relatives and heirs who are, are, are dealing with it. So you really, you really, it just never stops surprising you. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, money is definitely better than underwear. Exactly. <laughs> Didn't have to put on special special protective gear to handle that. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, hopefully you find more of that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, although, I, you know, you also feel bad because you're like, gosh, I'm sure whoever put this in there probably could have used this at some point. So uh, <laughs> hopefully... Uh, I was thinking, it made me think of, we've all had those moments, right? Where you can't remember where you perhaps had a, a bill and you thought you put it in your pocket or your wallet. You have no idea where it went to. So uh, I was like, I guess that's a universal human thing to do. Yeah. An archivist has all my missing socks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this was really great, Julie. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, it's a really... Uh, Obviously, the the collection itself is is very fascinating, and uh, it's it's really interesting hearing about uh, um, your day to day and your your passion for for archiving. Oh, thank you! It's my pleasure. Uh, I I love to talk about the archives and especially this collection. So I hope that um, everyone will get a chance to take a look at this and and get excited about it, and hopefully, it will provide a lot of food for thought for people as well. Yeah, I think it will. I think it will too. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. It was great talking to you. And uh, we will talk to everybody else uh, next time. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.